This episode of Good Morning Nancy contains discussions on sex and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Abby and I have been friends since the day she was born. We both love drinking coffee and talking about our favorite horror movies together. You can find our episodes, blog posts, merch, and more by going over to goodmorningnancy.com. We work really hard on these episodes and do a lot of research. So if you'd like to show us how much you appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. Remember, that's morning with an O-U. So today we're going to be talking about the 1992 supernatural horror film, Candyman. Mm-hmm. It was directed and written by Bernard Rose, and it's based off of a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker, the famous English horror writer who is probably best known for the Hellbound Heart, which was turned into the film Hellraiser. So good. Yes, and I highly recommend reading The Forbidden. Nice. Uh, If you can afford to support Clive Barker, definitely do, because he's my favorite horror writer. Yes. And he deserves all the money. So, the film stars Virginia Madsen, Cassie Lemons, Vanessa A. Williams, not to be confused with Vanessa Williams, (laughs) and Tony Todd, who is our, our love. We love him. Dreamy. Dreamy. So hot. <laughs> so originally, director Bernard Rose was set to create a film based off of Clive Barker's short story, In the Flesh, which is about a man in prison who begins to hear other people's thoughts. But in the same collection of the Books of Blood short stories, there was another story, The Forbidden, that Rose liked much more. He and the producers of the film felt that it likened to like a R-rated Twilight Zone episode, (laughs) thus making it more captivating to film and potentially more profitable. When Clive Barker wrote The Forbidden in the late 1970s, he didn't plan on writing like an urban legend story. Rather, he was inspired by his grandmother telling him as a child to not go into public toilets. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yep. And, uh... Uh... He never really knew why as a kid, and this was sort of like his artistic way of expressing that, you know, that fear as a kid of her telling him, don't go to the toilet. I mean, like, she probably meant because of germs, and he just really took an extreme turn with it. (laughs) So you can imagine his surprise when intellectuals wrote scholarly articles about the Candyman movie, saying that Barker had stolen a valuable piece of folklore and legend from African Americans by writing the story and then making the film. First of all... (laughs) It's implied in the short story that the Candyman isn't black, he's white. (laughs) Second of all, there was no legend to begin with. That's pretty sad because this was before the age of the internet. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really jumping to conclusions on this one. Right. (laughs) Barker ended up calling and writing back to a lot of these intellectuals and he told them straight up that there is no Candyman legend. I made it all up. Because you of toilets. Dumb idiots. <laughs> <laughs> this, oh. this apparently shocked some of them. And they apologized to him profusely, saying things like, I'm so sorry, I thought it was real. At least they apologized. 
Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Although Barker's short story is set in his native Liverpool, England, Rose, being an Englishman himself, decided that the film would be much better done in the U.S., And with the assistance of the Illinois Film Commission, Bernard Rose scouted locations in Chicago and found Cabrini Green, which he called, quote, an incredible arena for a horror movie because it was a place of such palpable fear. So uh, the change of setting from Liverpool, England to Chicago inspired a change to certain plot elements for the film as well. According to journalist Steve Bogira, one source of inspiration may have been a pair of articles he wrote for the Chicago Reader in 1987 and in 1990 about the real-life murder of a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy, a resident of Chicago's Abbott Homes housing project. In 1987, McCoy was killed by an intruder who entered her apartment through an opening behind the bathroom's medicine cabinet. Ugh. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Candyman, you know what this is in relation to plot-wise, and if not, you'll be getting a plot summary about it in just a few minutes. Yeah. So, Eddie Murphy was set to play Candyman at first, but... <laughs> I, I can't. Yes. He, thankfully, was much too expensive, and they decided to go with a lesser-known actor named Tony Todd, who as we mentioned earlier, is just absolutely wonderful. Yes. He is not only a very handsome man, he is <laughs> such a good actor he and is. does not get enough credit Mm-mm. for his skill. <laughs> so after Tony Todd read for the part of the Candyman, he said that it interested him because something like this had never been filmed before. And then he said, quote, I've always wanted to find my own personal fan of the opera. Unquote. Aww, that's awesome. Yeah. The film opened in the U.S. on October 16, 1992, and it was a box office hit, taking home $25.7 million domestically, with a budget of only $7 million. Whew, that's good. Dang. Candyman opened to mostly positive reviews, including a rare positive review from Roger Ebert. Dang. Saying, quote, Elements of the plot may not hold up in the clear light of day, but that didn't bother me much. What I liked was a horror movie that was scaring me with ideas and gore, instead of simply with gore. So, with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? Yes. So, the movie focuses on Helen Lyle. She's a graduate student who is writing a thesis with her academic partner, Bernadette, about a local urban legend called Candyman. If you say his name five times in the mirror, he appears and kills whoever summons him. So the story takes place in Chicago, and it mainly focuses on a housing project called Cabrini Green, where Candyman is known to roam. And according to the legend, Candyman was the son of a slave who became a successful shoemaker. And he was a portrait artist during the Civil War, but upon fathering a child out of wedlock with a white woman, he was captured by a lynch mob, and his dominant hand was cut off and replaced with a hook. Then they smothered him with honey and let him be attacked to death by bees. Yeah. And he roams Caprini Green because that was the site of where he was. They burned him alive also. Right. That's, <laughs> that's where his body, his ashes, that's where everything was. And then obviously over time, buildings were built over it. That's right. That's why he's there. Yeah. So Helen, curious about the story, seeks more information along with Bernadette. And they go into the projects and, you know, kind of try to talk to people. But they're seen as outsiders. Right. And everyone suspects that they're cops and like they're there to do like a drug bust or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Helen goes into one of the buildings and, you know, she's snapping pictures of all this graffiti and stuff on the walls. And finally, she comes to a room where there are all of these paintings associated with the Candyman legend. So they get out of there because they are like creeped out to the extreme. But Helen comes back and uh, she meets a single mother living in one of the apartments with her child. And throughout all of this, Helen is stalked by the Candyman and, you know, she gets beaten up by local gang members and stuff like that. And as strange occurrences begin to happen in conjunction with her research, the people she talks to are murdered by the Candyman. And one night, she blacks out and wakes up in the apartment of the single mother, and her child is now missing. And Helen is covered in blood, and she's wielding a meat cleaver as the police arrive at the scene to find her there. So they bring her in for questioning, but she's confused about how she got there. She doesn't really know what happens, and her life just kind of unravels. She's convicted of murdering people. And, you know, she's associated with all of these, like, brutal killings that are happening. Right. Eventually, she's put in a mental institution, but she breaks out as the Candyman comes and murders her therapist. Mm -hmm. And she makes her way back to her apartment where she discovers her husband is having an affair with one of her students. And all of this happens within about the span of a month's time. The movie closes, kind of, or comes to a climax as uh, Helen heads back over to Cabrini Green to try and find the missing child. And she discovers that the Candyman either needs her or the baby as a victim or a sacrifice. Right. And that's to keep his legend alive. Yes. So, as a trap, the Candyman puts the baby in this big basically pyre of all these people kind of throw this like bonfire every year yeah there's like old furniture and like wood pieces in it yeah yeah so he hides the baby in there helen hears the baby crying and soon becomes trapped in the rubble along with the candy man but as she's burning alive she breaks free of the candy man and rescues the baby and you know gives him back to the mother who has been looking she ends up becoming the sacrifice of the candy man so Her ghost carries on the legend, and in the closing scene, her husband is seen grieving in the bathroom, and he says her name five times in his mirror, and Helen appears as a ghost and brutally kills her husband. And the husband's, I guess now fiancé, that he was having the affair with, walks in and discovers him lying in a pool of blood because... Helen has carried on the Candyman legend. And that's it. Yeah. That's the end. It's yeah. so good. It's, it is so good. It's a phenomenal film. Okay. Really Thank you, Abby. That was so lovely. Oh, you're welcome. Now, the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. It yes. passes a few times. And at first I was a little worried because Helen and Bernadette, all, most of their conversations are about Candyman. Yeah. And he's a man. Uh, so I was a little nervous, but we're okay. They talk about other stuff, too. Uh, So now let's see if it passes our new Bechdel test, which we are calling Nancy's Dream Team Test. Yes. One, is the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes, it is. There are a lot of women in this film, and it's just, just darling. Yes, (laughs) I know. Two, did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No on all accounts. (laughs) Guilty. Three, was the final girl a person of color? No. No. We're going to get into that later. It's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Four, 
Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No, there were not. So let's start with the setting because we have a lot to say about where this takes place. Yeah. Bear with Abby and I. We are both white women. Yes. <laughs> we are not from Chicago. We don't know about what's happening in Chicago from a like from our perspective. It's yep. all through our research. I mean, we grew up in Syracuse. So. Yes, we grew up in in central New York. Yeah. So, please bear with us as we like as you listen to this research that we've done. A lot of this episode is going to be a lot of quotes from scholarly articles and a lot of quotes from news articles and from from a broadcast uh, because I don't think I don't know if the right is a is a right word but I don't think that we should comment too much on the racial divides and and uh, personally yeah well I, we have a different perspective on it we a have, very outsider's perspective we have an outsider's perspective um, and we are not going to pretend that we understand what it's like to be in the situation that no. these people are in <laughs> and we're going to get into how Candyman kind of falls victim to the male white perspective and the female white perspective because this film it has a, a, a white female protagonist and it's all it's all been written and produced and uh directed by white men mm -hmm. so uh bear with us and uh here we go yeah so the setting in the short story the forbidden the bonfire was in celebration of guy fox night right yeah so for those of you who are not english and unfamiliar with v for vendetta <laughs> Guy Fawkes was uh, England's first domestic terrorist, and he tried to blow up Parliament on November 5th, 1605, but of course he was unsuccessful. After he was caught, he was horrendously tortured and then burnt alive in a bonfire, so now England every year celebrates his demise by burning a straw man on a bonfire. Yeah. So in a sense, the ending to The Forbidden makes more sense because it's sort of the English setting of like burning things in Guy Fawkes Day where in yeah. Candyman it's sort of a very random tradition that they're doing by burning wood and furniture there's really no <laughs> yeah there's nothing burned in effigy no exactly they watch the ritual destruction of the Burning Man every year but the act of that man still haunts you every year and he returns every year and that ritual kind of helps keep that sort of Maybe those feelings of like trying to take down your government or like feelings <laughs> of like not trusting your government at bay. So like Guy Fox Knight is kind of interesting in that sense because from my understanding and from Clive Barker's understanding, because most of this is from Clive Barker's explanation of Guy Fox Day in the audio commentary of Candyman, sort of get burning those feelings of of negativity yeah. on Guy Fox Knight. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting in the English version because Barker uses quotes from Shakespeare in The Forbidden. And they're in, and they're in the movie version, too. Mm -hmm. Sweets to the Sweets yeah. is from Hamlet. Oh, yeah. Gertrude says it about Ophelia when Ophelia's dead. Uh, and sweets meaning flowers. She's right. giving her flowers on her grave. From groin to gullet, he says that at the beginning of the yes, film. Yes, yeah. That's actually something that's said in Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting that Bernard Rose, who's also English, the director, that he felt that it wasn't going to work in his English setting, where it's sort of 
very much so written for an English setting. Yeah. Well, and then this is also kind of interesting, too. Both Chicago, Illinois and Liverpool, England are victims of gentrification. Yeah. It's interesting because Bernard Rose felt that it was very important to show that side of the world, and in this case, Chicago. And it, it really does show the horrors of gentrification and what it does to people and, you know, that actually hurts people badly Yeah, to just make room for the middle class. Now, Abby, what do you think about that? Like, why do you think he wanted to change it from Liverpool to Chicago? What's the difference in his head? Well, I think it was sort of like, it was something that hadn't really been done before. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a new idea and it kind of shed a new light on what was happening in those settings Mm -hmm. and like you said it kind of reflects the horror that's happening within those structures and you know within those places Mm -hmm. but you know you look at the fears that maybe you look at the fears that like (sighs) white people have I guess going Mm -hmm. into settings like that yes and then you take it and you're like okay, you're a white person and you're afraid of being here, but this is what, you know, groups of people are afraid of. Yeah, and again, it's because this film is through the eyes of a white man. And this film is actually done in Cabrini Green, like the actual Cabrini Green. It's not just like a fake setting of Cabrini Green. They went there, they blocked off certain areas to film in, and and the crew was mostly white people. Who were from Chicago, who were just automatically afraid to go there because they knew, quote, quote, about it. Yep. Cassie Lemons, who plays Bernadette, said that you would hear on the news about how bad Cabrini Green was. But when they got there, she said all they really saw was like families who needed help. Like that's what it Uh, was. So it's probably, you know, the... (sighs) We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but the fear that media puts into people. Yes, of course. And, you know, of course you're going to be afraid to go in there if all you see is that imagery. You're not going to want to go there and reach out and help people because the media is saying, you better not. Like, if you're not already in this group of people, you're an outsider and you're going to get killed. So Well, yeah, and, you know, most of the people that lived in Cabrini-Green were abandoned by their city. Yeah. they ju- Like, there are good people there who need help, and, and they've completely been abandoned by their city. And the mayor uh, got an apartment there. Mm-hmm. You sent me a great uh, news broadcast about Cabrini-Green mm-hmm. and talked about how the mayor had stayed there, and she was like, we need to fix this place up, yada, yada. Uh, But in the audio commentary, it was so interesting. Bernard Rose basically said that was a publicity stunt. Yeah. Like nothing was really done about it. Well. It was sort of like for her to get kind of reelected or to look good. Because she went and like, oh, look what she did. She went and stayed. Again, white woman. Like, look at this white woman. It goes to this area that's mostly African-American. And and she's staying there and, and she's saying that we need to help them. But they never did. She also only stayed there like two times out of the month. Right. It she wasn't even like a permanent there. home. Right. She didn't stay there for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. 
in that same broadcast also they talk about you know how people were glad to have apartments there because it was so affordable and then they moved in there and they were caught in the crossfire of all of this like gang warfare and stuff like that tricked basically tricked to live there yeah like there was one woman who talks about how her family wouldn't eat dinner in the dining room anymore because it was too risky and they have like a closet that's sort of built off of one of the bedrooms that they all hide in because it's the only safe place in the house so it's like and well and bernard rose said when you make a supernatural movie you have to make sure that the setting is as realistic as possible otherwise your audience is going to call bullshit right you know, and I think that's why he chose Cabrini Green. I think mm-hmm. it, in the, at the time it was in the news a lot, so people knew about it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's why he also used the Ruthie Mae McCoy story. And, I mean, even in the film, her name is Ruthie Jean. So yeah. her name isn't even that different yeah. in the film. So, I, you know, that's an obvious clue that that's, he got that inspiration from that. Yeah. You know, but Robin Means Coleman, who wrote a fantastic book about horror called horror noir blacks in american films from the 1890s to present and she says quote Candyman continues to exploit fears of the inner city making a fearsome housing project home to gang violence filth and the most violent monster meaning Candyman." yeah definitely and yeah it's it is an exploitation of it and it's um well throughout the whole film there's that theme of like don't go there you know Mm -hmm. like stay out of there if one thing doesn't get you it's going to be something else yes it's it's really interesting uh let us know guys what you think about this again like we don't want to get too much into it it's not really fair for us to look at it from our perspective yeah but let us know what you think about choosing cabrini green and and having you know Candyman be in cabrini green it's really interesting yeah and also watch some of the videos too and some of like the footage that mm-hmm. has been produced from mm-hmm. cabrini green there's some really good news broadcasts but there's also really good interviews from people that live there so yes and in one of the videos there's a radio host a woman who's a black radio host and mm-hmm. and uh, a scholar in these videos and they really get to talk about it too and, and it's really great to hear uh, what they have to say about it so definitely check those out they're in the show notes mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit more about the women who are represented in the film especially helen and bernadette mm-hmm. so in elspeth kids article guess who else is coming to dinner racial slash sexual hysteria and Candyman. she writes throughout the film and in the short story on which it is based helen's academic ambition is for her research to exceed that of her husband's trevor and the character purcell and for those of you who remember purcell is an english guy who is her and her husband's friend and they go to dinner with him Mm -hmm. and he kind of brags to Helen that he knows more about Candyman. Yes, he knows more about the legend than she does. Mm -hmm. So throughout the film and in the short story on which it is based, Helen's academic ambition is for her research to exceed that of her husband's Trevor and the character Purcell. She is aided by Bernadette, 
but not in competition with her, which is really great. Yes. Two women who are working together and are friends. Yeah. And you can obviously tell that they care about each other, too. Absolutely. Which is awesome. They have a really great connection in the film. Yeah. So, um, again, with a kid's article, she says, Helen's ambition to exceed the men she works with is what leads her to trouble and to Cabrini Green. Uh, it could be argued that she is attempting to exceed the limitations of gender placed on her, metaphorically crossing the line into the male-dominated territory of the university as she crosses the line into the men's room of the public toilet. Yeah. And that's where she's beaten by some gang members. Mm-hmm. Kid continues saying, her beating in this toilet and the subsequent battles with Candyman could be seen as a punishment for transgressing socially prescribed gender roles. Yeah. As well as positions of class and race. Mm-hmm. So that is really a complex statement. Yeah. And well, she's a very, very complex character, I think. Yes. Not only is she crossing the line, like, in a sexual sense with her gender, but she's also crossing the line because of her race. Yeah. And yeah, again, guys, let us know what you think about this uh, statement. Here's another interesting thing, and this is sort of a behind-the-scenes thing with this character. Bernard Rose wanted Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen. I love her. He wanted her to gain weight for the film. And because uh, he wanted her to look more, quote, real and relatable... And he felt that she was too glamorous. And so he wanted to sort of like dumb down her looks by making her gain weight. Which is stupid because she's gorgeous always. Yes. And he wanted her to cut her hair and have like little to no makeup. I did not know that after watching this. I was telling my husband, I was watching this and I was like, this is the most beautiful I've ever seen Virginia Madison in I thought film. that too. When I was watching it, I was like, holy crap, she is a knockout. Yeah. And like, I guess like he would show up to her dressing room every day with pizza and they would like sit oh. and eat pizza. <laughs> I know. And I thought that doesn't sound so bad, actually. I know. <laughs> but he would just give her pizza every day. She did. I mean, she ended up gaining weight. But for me, being somebody who is not very fit physically... I kind of really loved seeing a final girl who looked like this. Yeah, me too. You see like final girls who are like super thin and mousy like Laurie Strode in mm-hmm. Halloween. Or you see them who are just super fit like Sydney from Scream and Aaron from Your Next. Like, which is totally fine. Like, totally against body shaming. And I'm, not, yeah, I'm just really happy to have seen somebody who has like my body type. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I'm not going to call it more real and relatable. I think that that's unfair that Bernard Rose used those words. I know. Yeah. I mean, I don't like the fact that he made her gain weight. <laughs> like if no, she didn't want yeah. to kind of thing. By like basically tricking her to eat pizza. But I mean, that's probably the nicest way possible to go about that, though. <laughs> that is a very sweet way. It's a very sweet trick. I'd be like, heck yeah, I'll gain weight for this role. <laughs> <laughs> Free pizza literally every yes. day. Gimme. <laughs> And she's very smart. Yeah. And every, and it kind of just shows you that you don't need to be super fit to be a final girl or really thin to be a final girl in a horror film. Well, and the other unfortunate part about that, though, is like the girl that her husband has an affair with is like this really, she's, she looks like 110% different from Helen. She's got long blonde hair. She's tall. She's like really skinny. She's like typical supermodel type. It's so interesting. Again, let us know what you guys think. Yes. 
Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. But I want to go back and say, uh, quote Robin Means Coleman again, the writer of Horror Noir. She says, in the end, this movie is about celebrating white womanhood. (sighs) So we can say that we really love Helen. Helen's really great. She is. But this is sort of supposed to be a story about black America. And it's all done through the eyes of a white female. Yeah. Kind of going back to the whole, like... Uh, the gender rules she's crossing, not only th- with her gender, but she's crossing the the line because she's a white person. Mm. And yeah, it's just something to think about. And it still it feels like it treats, you know, people who live in America who are black like, oh, the, they're the like other. the outsiders, but they're yes. not really like we all. Yes. We're yes. all among each other. So. Right. Like. After Helen uh, is beaten up in the in the men's toilet by the gang, uh, and that's when she kind of takes that turn where like Candyman appears to her. Supposedly, yeah. there's you know we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute, but like it's sort of like a rumor that Candyman doesn't actually exist; that she's the one doing everything. Yeah, only black people are affected up until she kills her husband. Yeah, and the psychiatrist. So it's sort of like this whole thing where, like, you know, black, and then it's not even uh, just black people, it's black women are victims. Yeah. And it's sort of like a punishment. And I think that's like something that kind of rubbed some people the wrong way. Well, do you think it's also maybe a commentary on like how Be- white people handle, you know, supposedly like black on black crime where it's actually put in motion by white people and we are looking for something else to blame it on because of course it can't be us so Candyman is that kind of yeah it could definitely be that i mean 
they're, like it's being like it's displaced. Bet- it's between you guys. It yeah. has nothing to do with us. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think that's one of the comments that's made uh, subconsciously in this film. And uh, actually, uh, I'm remembering now, Helen makes that comment after she's beat up in the bathroom and she has to identify the guy that did it. Yeah. She says, like, just because I'm, it, they only arrested him because I'm white. Yes. And he's been terrorizing these people in Cabrini Green all these years. And they only did something about it because I was hurt. Mm -hmm. And she does say that to Bernadette. And I thought that was, I thought that was pretty interesting that they made that comment in 1992. Me too. Well, and there's all, there's that quote at the end too that Candyman says, you know, it was always you. Meaning, so it could have like multiple meanings, really. It was always you who like perpetuated the violence against black people as a yes. white slave owner yeah. or you know it was you all along who was doing these things but you're looking for an outside source to blame it on right all of the times in the 60s when black men were blamed for raping white women yes. because of course it couldn't be like a good old white boy you know what i mean so right uh so to quote clive barker he says an irrational fear is the building blocks toward racism Tony Todd, again, who plays the Candyman, felt like director Bernard Rose did a really good job using racism as a background for this horror film by using a horror figure born in turn by the horrors of racism. Yeah. And he said he could sort of, like, relate it back to Phantom of the Opera, right? That was his whole big thing Mm -hmm. of playing a Phantom of the Opera character. I mean, Phantom of the Opera was, uh, he was a vengeful man and he became this way because he was rejected by society in the audio commentary cassie lemon says that it's interesting because racism towards people of color is what created the monster in the first place well and also the reason why this happened was because he fathered a child with a white woman who he was in love with uh even though he is basically at the same level as this woman is it's because he's black that it's his fault yeah so now like it's kind of like a line. Yeah. Yeah. And now like the tables are turned. Yes. So, you know, she's there exploring what she shouldn't be and having experiences that she shouldn't be having among these people. And he's like, mm, nope, sorry. Doesn't work like that. Yeah, super interesting. <laughs> yeah. So that is going to kind of bleed into what we're going to talk about next. Uh, let's sort of talk about the urban legend itself. Yeah. So Bernard Rose used the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy, uh, but there's obvious relations to other urban legends, right? Yeah. So Barker, in his book, wrote about how the candy man had a hook for a hand, mm-hmm. right? And the hook man story, as we all know, is about a lover's lane kind of legend yeah. where there's two people in a car, like, making out, and they hear on the radio that a man with a hook has escaped from an insane asylum, and he's <laughs> out and about, and they hear a noise, and the boy in the car leaves, and he's killed or whatever, or yeah. something, and and they hear, like, a scratch, like, on yeah. their, their car, and, like, the girl tries to drive away, and when she drives to safety, she sees that there's a hook hanging from the car handle like the hook man was trying to get in and when she drove away she pulled his hook off oh yeah so that's the hook man story yeah and then uh it also kind of relates to the bloody mary story yeah where you stand in, in the dark in front of a mirror and say bloody mary bloody mary bloody mary and then a ghost appears to you mm-hmm. so that's sort of like what clive barker and bernard rose used to create the Candyman legend 
a legend of a legend of a legend. Yeah, there's a lot of like <laughs> seems like it shouldn't work, but it does. Like the imagery with the bees and yes, like the candy with the razor blades in it. They seem so random, but it all kind of just fits together. Right. It just works. It's just a bunch of uh, legends working together to create another legend, and it's very uh, it's easy to understand. Yeah, let's go back to like what it uh the legend actually does right so like you said like he's burned alive and he has the you know he's given the hook for the hand and the honey and that's why the bees are very significant uh oh honey is sweet yeah sweet for the sweet sweets. for the sweet yep and in the sequel farewell to the flesh which is a horrible sequel but <laughs> they show that happening to him mm so that's you know he he gets destroyed and that all happens like because like you said because he falls in love with a white woman um he's he's sort of falling in love with helen yeah if you believe he's real you see that he's falling in love with helen and he's he's sort of becoming like that phantom right dracula-esque type character and um well it's kind of like history repeating itself you know what i mean because there's a baby there's right of course that's so true so this is kind of interesting because even though there's this interracial romance between helen and the candy man and the candy man and his what caroline i think was her name Mm -hmm. like his original love who was white so even though there's like this interracial romance and it's pretty groundbreaking for horror uh it actually has a lot of serious problems and as a white person i never would have recognized that but I read Horror Noir by Robin Means Coleman, mm-hmm. and she said that this is a problem of this inter- this interracial romance is kind of a problem because it undoubtedly, like, even innocently displays, like, white feminine purity and black yeah. hyper-masculinity. And he's, like, an evil entity. You yes. know what I mean? It kind of brings out these negative stereotypes with white women and black men, and it kind of shows their interracial romance in a very horrific sexual way. Well, come on, like, be my victim? Yes, of course. And she says in her book, quote, Candyman is to be viewed as a tragic, wounded monster, perhaps Frankenstein-esque, in that he was created and made by far more terrible people than him. Oh, yeah. However, the film strays from the monster with a heart of gold theme by playing on the fears of the black boogeyman coming in and taking away all of the white women and she goes on to say that the loaded imagery that's used in the film is very reminiscent of the film birth of a nation yes which portrays a black person as a boogeyman attacking a white woman oh my god this book is so fantastic when we think about this interracial romance we we can't deny that it does have problems and i think that's really great that coleman brings that up Yeah, absolutely. So Tanya Modleski suggests in her book, Feminism Without Women, Culture and Criticism in a Post-Feminist Age, that black characters often function in dominant Hollywood narratives as the embodiment of the sexuality of white relationships. And Kidd, who wrote uh, Guess Who, the article Guess Who Else is Coming to Dinner, she says that Candyman's arrival is not the perfect completion of Claire, and Claire and Billy are the characters in the beginning who mm-hmm. are in the story that's being told about Candyman. They're the ones who uh, are about to have sex, and they say Candyman in the mirror. Mm-hmm. 
So Kid says Candyman's arrival is not the perfect completion of Claire's desire to have sex with her boyfriend, Billy. Instead, it functions as a punishment for Claire for harboring those desires. And then she goes on to quote, representing the monstrous excessive sexuality of the black man in the racial unconsciousness, Candyman brings not sexual satisfaction, but a violent death. Yeah. It's really heavy stuff. Well, Um, that also makes me think, too, like, the whole relationship between Candyman and Helen is so sensual, and there's a lot of scenes where they're close together, and he's, you know, like, embracing her and that kind of thing. And then in the beginning, when Claire... Claire is the one who actually summons him, Mm -hmm. because she's the one who says his name one more time. Yes. It's like that, like, forbidden fruit kind of thing. Like, she's like, oh, I... Nobody's ever done that before. Yeah. It's... And there's that, like... exploitation of of interracial relationships. Yes. And and then, of course, he kills her, right? Yeah. And that's the other thing, too. It's like, when you're saying that Helen and the Candyman are embracing, and it's a very, like, very sensual experience, he takes his hook, and he's going up her dress with her hook. None of this is warm and fuzzy love This is very violent stuff. And it's weird because it perpetuates that like, like a lot of pornography and stuff like that will kind of (laughs) carry that out and like carry it on where Mm -hmm. it's like that weird, like, ooh, this is so taboo. Like, again, guys, please let us know what you think of this and all of the uh, links to these books. Like I have a link to where you can buy it on Amazon. They're so good definitely read them if you want to learn more about what horror is like for others yeah do it yes okay (laughs) so let's get into some more maybe lighter behind the scenes things yes (laughs) so interestingly enough bernard rose the director was a hypnotist get out yes and he would hypnotize i don't like it i know I was not comfortable with this. He would hypnotize Virginia Madsen in those scenes where she's like, where she's being, quote, hypnotized by the Candyman. Whoa. He, he actually hypnotized her. I don't her. like that. Yeah, that's why her eyes, like, that's why her, like, pupils dilated and her eyes, like, started getting glassy and she started crying for, like, no reason. Is because Bernard Rose behind the camera was, like, just saying, like, oh, you feel this way and you feel that way and blah, blah, blah. I don't like that. Well, and he... She's an actor. She can do it herself. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and he ended up starting feeling bad about it, too. Good. And he was like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't do this. Gross. Yeah. Oh. So they stopped after a while. Wait, so, but like, why was he feeling bad? Was I think there he kept something going no, on. No, like, I think he just kept thinking, like, I don't know if I should just if this is a, the way I should be doing this. Yeah. I think he kind of felt like I don't even I don't even know if he even meant it to be honest with you because he's already a hypnotist. Mm-hmm. He might have just been telling her things behind the camera and maybe accidentally doing it. I don't know. Oh my god, wild. I don't know, yeah. But it that made me uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um so yeah, after a while they decided not to do it. And I wonder if he did feel bad because in the strip search scene where she mm. after she apparently kills uh Anne Marie's dog and Anne Marie's the single mom. Uh and she has to take all of her clothes off and Ugh. uh you know has to lift her boobs up and it's a very sad and scary scene for she her. Was so good. So Bernard Rose actually said that you can pick the person to play the policeman who is strip searching you. Wow. And so she picked her best friend whose name is Rusty Schwimmer. 
her real name. Oh. And you guys might recognize her from The Little Princess. I knew I knew her from somewhere. Yes, she's in The Little Princess. She's in Twister. And she's in Perfect Storm. Yes. So she is Virginia Madsen's best friend. That was insanity because it was such a short scene. But I was like crying watching her because yeah. she was so convincing. Because anyone who's ever been upset about anything... <laughs> Like, and it's not because she was forced into the situation and made uncomfortable. She was actually in a very safe space. Yeah. That's how amazing she is, though, too. It's like, you know, not to diss any actors, but some actors need to be like punched in the face in order to feel something. Some actors just need to feel safe. Yeah. So, uh, again, behind the scenes stuff, Clive Barker wanted to create a monster that was aware of its greatness. (laughs) Which is kind of really fun. Uh, If you really think about it, how many killers in horror movies are aware? Pinhead is kind of like that, though, too. Pinhead is kind of like that. That's true. Um, Freddy Krueger knows that he's a bad guy. Pazuzu from The Exorcist is very aware that he's horrible and a demon. (laughs) Um, That's great and all, but it's like, when does that become hilarious? (sighs) And you, I mean... I mean, you can argue that Freddy Krueger became funny later in the... I mean, he's funny in the first one, I guess. But, like, as the sequels went on, like, he became more and more, like, ridiculous because he's aware of himself. Yeah. Uh, Candyman doesn't do that, though. He's not the butt of a joke. Yeah. Well, because he's an urban legend and it's easy to make a joke out of something like that. Definitely. So, yeah. So let's talk very quickly about the bees. Not the bees! Not the bees. I did, uh, I did think of that when I watched this. I was uh, like, oh man, that stupid movie ruins bees for everybody. <laughs> so Virginia Madsen's actually allergic to bees. Oh dear. When she told Bernard Rose that, he was like, no, you're not. <laughs> and made her do the scene. <gasps> but she said that the more that she was educated about them, the less afraid she was. Good. And she didn't get stung. Yeah, sense your fear exactly, and I think she kind of like she wasn't afraid of it. And those bees that were on her were like twelve hours old, so they were legit infant bees, baby bees, baby bees, and so they couldn't fly. That's why they're all like crawling on her. But Tony Todd, yes, but Tony Todd was covered in adult bees, and he was Uh, stung multiple times. And he had to wear a mouth guard in his mouth so that the bees wouldn't crawl down his throat. I thought about so, that. I was like, how, yeah, how did we've you... all seen Anaconda? Like, <laughs> we know. We yeah. know what happens when you get stung in the throat. Yes. <laughs> oh. So he got stung a lot, but he got, I guess he got a pay raise every time he got stung. And I got into an argument with my husband about this. I was like, this would never happen in a film that was filmed in like 2018. This would never happen now. It would you'd be have, CGI. You'd have CGI bees. Yeah. And he was like, I don't think so. And I was like, definitely think so because you can die from yes. being stung. Even if you're not allergic. No, yes, because it's still poison. Yeah. Any amount of poison in your body that's just too much. Well, what will happens? Kill you. I think you go into shock, right? Yes. And then you're like, Bleh, dead. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what happens. <laughs> You make that noise, too. I bet you do. Dead. (laughs) Okay, so there's so much to think about here, guys. And this is kind of a long episode, but it's so worth it because it's so... This film has so many layers to it. It's like an onion. Yes. Great. A delicious onion. Final thought. Candyman divided 
black America. Mm. According to Virginia Madsen, she witnessed two women of color arguing about Candyman in front of her. One of them felt like it was one of the most racist films of all time, while the other woman thought it was so great to see so many black people represented in a horror movie. Yeah. Both of them made excellent points on their side of the argument, and Virginia Madison thought it was really great that they felt like they could talk about it. And they could talk about it with her. Mm -hmm. In the final quote from the article, Guess Who Else is Coming to Dinner? Racial and Sexual Hysteria and Candyman, Elspeth Kidd writes, quote, Candyman is a complex film that invites multiple and often contradictory readings. Such aspects as the geographical cityscape and the urban planning are used to explore the issue of boundaries and the fear invoked by the transgression of designated spaces. Mm. The boundaries established between the binary oppositions between black and white, male and female, middle class and working class. This whole, like, that's what I mean. This film has so many layers. It's Mm -hmm. so, it does. It contradicts itself constantly. And no matter what side you argue, there's something great about it. There's also something really bad about it. Exactly. You know, it's, it, it's sort of like, on one hand, there's not enough representation of African Americans in, in any genre, in film and TV. And on the other hand, if there is representation, is it fair? It gets, like, again, so many layers. Please, guys, let us know what you think. Okay, so I want to end on this. Tony Todd said in the same commentary, uh, the audio commentary for Candyman, quote, We had Blackula, and there were a couple of others, but I knew I wanted to give tribute not only to other horror icons, but to other African-American actors, unquote. Mm. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Amazing movie. Please watch it, you guys. I hope you watched it before you listen to this. Yes. It's so wonderful. I've, I I think this was the most that I've watched a film for an episode. I watched this f- film five times Whoa. this week. Yes. Bananas. Bananas. It's so great. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Yeah. So if you'd like to stay up to date, please follow us on Twitter at Good Morning Nan, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Remember, that's morning with an O-U, guys. Also, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. It takes literally a couple seconds, but it helps us out so much. You guys have no idea. It really does. Like, that is a huge help to us. You guys, we love you all so much. So much. Yes. Thank you so much for listening and have a great morning. Bye.